Okay, good morning. It's so nice to see all of you today. And the sun is, is making its appearance, which is so nice, isn't it? To have some sunshine after the spring rains. And uh, now we're getting all... Can, are you having a hard time hearing me? Yeah? Can you hear me? Okay, so here we go. Um, hopefully you all grabbed a handout and signed in. And if this is your first time signing in, your name won't be on the sheet, but if you put your name, then it will forever be on the list. (laughs) Um, So today, uh, we are going through Colossians, and we had the introduction and made our way into chapter 1. What I would like to do is... I would like to delve just a little bit deeper into chapter 1. I talked last time about uh, the Gnostic heresy that St. Paul is reacting to. Um, I talked a little bit about, uh, you know, we're familiar with eschatology and the end times. Colossians has a theme of protology, the first things, you know, uh, cosmology, the creation of things, how things exist. And you'll see that as we get into the, into the chapter a little, a little more deeply today. Um, one of the things that I would like to, because, you know, I think about there's so much going on in the text and rather than just running through it verse by verse, I, I, I looked for a theme that I think is very important. And there's a theme in verse 9, Colossians 1.9. And it reads, let me open up to it here. Colossians 1.9. And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, you know, you think about this just practically. Think about uh, people that you know and love, uh, maybe friends, maybe family members that have had a hard time stepping into the faith. Um, You know, I I can say this uh, with my own family, uh, my parents and my brother, whom I love, and they're great people. Um, You know, when I I first became uh, a Christian and I started to talk about the Christian faith, they looked at me cross-eyed, you know, and they're like, oh boy, you know, You know, he was living his life and, you know, having a good time, and now he's a Christian, and now he's telling us about it, you know. And uh, what I found was prayer was something that I had to spend a lot of time with. Um, As as you know, right, uh, it's difficult to talk to people about the Christian faith and Christ. And so often, what can you do? Uh, you pray. And we see this, this is one thing you see in verse 9, that Paul is praying for the church in Colossa. 
and it is a participle. So it is ongoing. It's just something that he keeps doing on a regular basis. It's a part of the rhythm of his life. And, and I would say, and maybe you've experienced this too, in your life, as you have prayed for people, that you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray, and the answer to the prayer is very slow. But in this verse then, in addition to this, notice what Paul is asking for, for the people. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So I mentioned this last week that knowledge in Greek, so it's the word gnosis in Greek, which is uh, a word that is you, is how the Gnostics got their, their name, gnosis, Gnostic, gnosis. And generally speaking, the idea with Gnostics was that the wisdom that they got was hidden and not accessible to everyone. You had to be in a special category. You had to be a special person to get this deep gnosis, this deep knowledge. And so what Paul does is when he talks about, I'm praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, the knowledge, as I mentioned last week, is epigenosis. And so the prefix epi means that it's this knowledge is something outside of you that comes upon you. It comes upon you. It's not within. It's outside and comes. And you'll see this language in this chapter because what he is doing is he's emphasizing to the church in Colossae that this knowledge is available to everyone. And so it is his prayer that this divine, under, this divine knowledge will come to them. And with it is spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so wisdom is Sophia. And then understanding is this interesting word, synesis. And I've got the three Greek words up on the top of the handout. These terms are used in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. So in, in the Old Testament, you know, you have the Old Testament Masoretic text, which was written in Hebrew. But then you have the Septuagint Old Testament, which was written in Greek. And you see this, these words used in the Greek Old Testament in different places. So take a look at Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, for example. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this wisdom comes upon Joshua by the laying on of hands of Moses, which is preparatory then as Joshua leads the people into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land. 
So it is something that is given. That's one thing. And in the, so I translated it from the Greek Old Testament. So the Septuagint reads sometimes just a little bit differently than the Hebrew. And so I have my translation here right below that, right below the Nota Bene. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of understanding. So the Greek is synesis. For Moses placed his hand upon him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it's understanding in the Greek. So these these things of wisdom and understanding are conveyed from Moses to Joshua. Now go to Job 28, and this is amazing. We're looking at Job 28, verses 20 to 28. Look at what, what Job says. Oh, yeah, Job 28, 20. From where then does wisdom come? And wisdom is Sophia. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And the word is synesis. It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he sought and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You hear the interchange of wisdom and understanding? Now notice how, what Job is talking about creation and the establishment of the universe and wisdom and understanding are characteristics of God's divine creation. That has an effect and gives us insight into Paul's usage of these terms in Colossians 1. He's saying to the church there that all things start to make sense when divine wisdom and understanding comes to us. We understand God, we understand the universe, we understand ourselves. And that is as you may well know, it's an eye-opener as we grow as Christians. Because as we grow, we start to look at the world differently, don't we? And we look at people differently, and we look at um, what people are capable of and the wor- what the world is capable of. We're, we look at evil, and we see evil for what it is. And it changes the way we look at things and the way we live. And we become different. 
And this is part of this spiritual understanding that St. Paul is talking about. And, you know, in Colossae, they were caught in the middle of all kinds of different philosophies of life. And they, being, you know, a young church full of converts, uh, they were still pulling away from perhaps their old lives and their old practices. And so they were having to come to terms with what it is to embrace the gospel and Jesus and to be different, uh, to grow in faith, to grow in wisdom, to grow in holiness. Yes? Yes, uh, Lutherans, it's hard not to read Deuteronomy and the passage in Job and think of the Holy Spirit mm. um, calling and enlightening. Sure. How would a Jewish person, either then or now, or both, um, read these passages? Mm. Well, there's the, um, there's the rabbinical theme of halakha. And the rabbinical theme of halakha is seen in, um, you know, in a way, moral behavior. Um, it is seen in, there's two roads of life, two ways of living. And so, you know, they would likely see it as, um, you know, there's, well, in fact, Paul, Paul will get to this in Colossians 1 when he talks about darkness and then light. That's a very halakha kind of theme where you're talking about there's two ways. Even the didache quotes that. Yeah, the didache talks about it. And so, you know, they would definitely look at it as like in Job when it talks about Abaddon. Uh, where was that? Abaddon and... Death, say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears, but Abaddon and death would be darkness. And then to obtain wisdom and understanding is to enter light. And so they would see it just very concretely that way. You know, there's two roads. You can go this way or you can go that way. And to embrace godly wisdom and understanding is to go on the road of light. And they would see it in terms of the temple uh, and God's presence. They would see it in terms of the reading of the scriptures in the temple. Uh, and, uh, and of course, we see it similarly in that regard, right? For us, we, and this is Paul's thing, we differ from the Gnostics in that it's not, sec it's not some secret that's hidden away somewhere and we have to try to attain it. It is proclaimed uh, all over. And Colossians 1 talks about that too, that everyone has the, the, the ability. So let's, in fact, so let's keep thinking about that. Good question. So in terms of this understanding, go to Luke 2.47. So this is the boy Jesus in the temple, Luke 2.47. And we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 46. After three days... They found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So 
this understanding is that Greek word synesis. So the concept of this divine understanding of its nature resides in Jesus. Even the boy Jesus at 12. So the fact that he's 12 years old and he has this synesis, this understanding, signals that it has always been in him because he is the Son of God. It also coincides, if you go to Mark 12, 33, with the first commandment. You have the, one of the scribes coming up and talking to Jesus. And so in verse 28, so Mark 12, 28, one of the scribes came up. He heard them disputing with one another seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it, or the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So Jesus says it one way, but then the, the man says it just a little differently to love, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength. He inserts the word understanding. So to, un, to have this understanding is to know the Lord. So it's a divine thing. It's given and then this understanding responds in faith. So it's connected to faith. So then as we continue, uh, Ephesians 3, 1, verse 7, you can read that on your own and you'll get the, the context of, of divine understanding. Uh, this kind of understanding, by the way, is different than other things like the woman at the well in John, John 4, 19. She, she says uh, that she theorizes in Greek. She theorizes that Jesus is uh, a prophet. But to theorize is different. She doesn't yet have the divine understanding you know, it's just sort of, she's seeing shadows and she's like, you know, there's something about you. <laughs> and, but she's not sure what it's. So it's at that point when she says that it's different than when people have this synesis, this divine understanding. Now go back into the Old Testament to Exodus 31, 1 to 5. See how I just jump around all the time? I'm all over the place. That's how my mind works too, by the way. It's kind of scary to get in there and, you know, see that kind of stuff happening. But 
So Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5. And this is to me profound. Exodus 31, 1 to 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Now, in that text, in the Greek, in the Septuagint, the Greek words surface, Sophia, synesis, or syneos, and epistemes. These are described as qualities given by the Spirit of God. You noticed it says in verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And then it lists these things with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. Now, isn't that interesting? Are there any artists in here? Okay, yep, Holly, any other artists in here? Okay, Kathy. You know, this, in, in, and again, you know, you've heard me say this, but I just can never, like, get away from this, that this word in Hebrew for wisdom is artisanship. It's skilled craftsmanship. God gives the spirit, his, his spirit to this man in order to do artistic design to beautify the lives of other people within the context of their their worship and these words are present wisdom understanding and so paul uses the very same language that is used here in exodus 31 for an an artisan for the church's holiness. Now think about beauty. You know, Pastor Nelson and Pastor Bruzek have taught for years here about beauty. Well, this is why. Because it, these things are from God. You know, beauty, color. Um, you know, there are places a couple of places in the New Testament where Paul uses such language. Let's see. I'm not going to find it now. Oh, yeah. Um, go to uh, Ephesians 3, verse 10. And back up, uh, just to get context, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 7. So here we are back at Ephesians 3 that I said read later. But anyway, <laughs> all right, Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Manifold wisdom of God. Now, notice the word wisdom, Sophia, manifold. So the word in Greek for manifold is polypoikolos, and it literally means variegated or multicolored. So the wisdom of God is colorful. It's got a lot of dimensions to it. It's enticing. It draws us in. And so, you know, this gets, you know, you can extend this then to uh, stewardship. You can extend it to the gifts of God. And you can see how the Lord provides created gifts. So this is kind of back to protology as opposed to eschatology. So protology. So God provides gifts to us. And then if we use them according to his purpose and will and plan, then they become beautiful and they become blessings and they add to the tapestry of the Christian life in the body, in the flesh, you see. So we're not Gnostic. We're not Gnosticized. We're not disembodied. We are in the flesh. We are loved and holy and blessed in the flesh. And when you come to church and you see this beauty all around you are seeing the wisdom of God from heaven uh, brought down into our lives. And this is then how the church's mission, so you know, you think about the theme about early Christian devotion and mission and how this all comes together. You know, the divine wisdom comes down from above and comes right to you in the liturgy, and it proclaims a promise, but then you obtain the promise in the present. And as you're forgiven, it begins to change you and shape you and give you direction, and your mind is opened, and you see the world as it really is, and you see yourself in the light of Christ, and it changes everything, right? There's no color in darkness, right? You need light. And when that light shines, then the color shows. And so that brings us back to Colossians. As we take a look at this, uh, the differences between light and dark, which he mentions. All of this is at work. So I guess what I'm trying to point out and to show you is that in Colossians 1, Paul, being a Hebrew, being schooled as a rabbi, he knows these themes very well, and they do not escape him. He is writing to the Colossians, 
and he is giving them the depth of the things of the Old Testament, but he's putting it within the framework of Jesus so that they see that the world can be beautiful and meaningful and their lives can be filled with beauty through Christ. Would the average Jewish person at the time have heard all of those same things? I think they would have, um, but they would have seen it just a little differently, maybe. You know, uh, they would have seen it in terms of um, messianic expectation that hasn't come, right? Um, and so, you know, they would see it in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Um, they would see it in the temple and then, you know, they would see it in the synagogues. But maybe not quite as vibrant as Paul makes it as fulfilled in Jesus. So, you know, in some ways it's like maybe shadows of things to come, but Paul's emphasis is you get it now. Yeah. And so in verses 12 and 13, um, actually you start at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The inheritance. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you could just see like, the sun coming out like today, you know, and you're like, oh, this is great. And this is what they're experiencing as they read this. They're thinking, because, right, you're a young convert and your old life is still fresh in your memory. And then you're hearing this and how you've been moved from darkness to light. And it's like Easter all over again, you know. And then you get to the verses 15 through 20, which is the Christ hymn. And the Christ hymn itself is some high Christology that Paul uses. And, you know, scholars are not sure if this was a, a hymn that they were already familiar with. That's possible. Or maybe it's something that Paul pens himself uh, and gives to them. But it's, it's filled with themes of Christology which refute the heresy that St. Paul is addressing in the letter, this Gnostic thought. And so there's a twofold theme in Colossians 1, 15 to 18a. So 18a would be like the first part of verse 18. And that deals with the theme of creation and cosmology. And then Colossians 1.18b, so the second half of verse 18 and through 20, that's the theme of reconciliation and salvation. Again, we see the theme of protology here, the obverse of eschatology. 
It reveals the teaching of creation and how the world came into being. But related to this is the teaching of how the created world was corrupted by the fall of humanity. So wisdom is connected and present with creation. And you can read Proverbs 8 on your own and you'll see this theme running through there. Paul establishes Jesus with creation. And so in Colossians, Paul encourages his audience to look at how one views the universe. And we then, through this, are encouraged as we reflect on how the Lord has us and his creation in his hands. So let's look at these, this Christ hymn and read it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we look at these verses, like verses 16 and 17, all things stand together in Christ. Think about that for your life. All things stand together through him. That means that there's order. And that's important when we feel like the world is chaos or we feel like our, our lives are a bit chaotic. And if you have children, you know, you always feel like your life is chaotic and you're like, I don't know how this is going to look at the, in the end game, right? But, you know, the beautiful thing is, is through the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that the Lord provides, he orders, he orders everything. He orders the universe. So, you know, you look at, you know, the things that are going on in Ukraine and with Russia. Um, you look at what has been happening for the last two years with the pandemic. And then, you know, you, you look at, oh, they just came out this week and said that it, they expect inflation to last at least the next three years. And you're like, oh, great. You know, and you're just like, all right, okay. So, you know, and eschatology is waiting for right? Looking to the end, looking to the coming of Christ, his second coming. Um, of course, it begins eschatology, right? The end times is ushered in through the passion of Jesus. But people so often, when they think of eschatology, they think of, oh, you know, like St. Augustine. So St. Augustine, he was Bishop of Hippo in North Africa from 398 to 430 AD. Okay, so that's early, right? And he was alive when Rome was sacked. And, you know, Rome, they thought, was impenetrable. And St. Augustine writes about how he could see from the shoreline of North Africa 
he could see the smoke as billowing as Rome, as Rome burned. And, you know, to him, Rome was a solid, you know, it was civilization. And so as, as Rome burns and he sees way off in the distance the smoke, he thinks the world is coming to an end. You know, he's sure this is it. You know, and that's like 398 to 430 AD, somewhere in there. I don't remember the exact year that that happened, but, and then uh, Luther, you know, there's Luther in the 1500s and he's looking at everything that's going on. And, you know, the Muslims are threatening the Holy Roman Empire. Emperor Charles V, you know, he's persecuting uh, people of the Reformation. The Pope, you know, wants Luther's head on a silver platter, and Luther's sure. You know, in fact, Luther even says, I've n- there's never been times like this. <laughs> it's the worst it's ever been. <laughs> and so Luther was sure. Oh, yeah, it's coming to an end. Even before that, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you know, the, the, the Thessalonians, they were sure Jesus was coming back next week, so they're they're sitting and playing PlayStation and they're not working anymore, you know? And they're just like, hey, get some popcorn. Let's hang out. You know, he's coming next week. So, you know, don't, work, don't go work. Come on, you know, let's have a good time. And Paul's like, get back to work. Come on, you know? So, you know, when we think about the end times, it's one thing, you know? And there's a tendency to look at, oh boy, oh boy, now this is happening. Oh boy, this is happening. But protology is helpful, and Paul is providing some helpful response in his view in these verses as he talks about how all things stand together in Christ. And so, you know, yes, and and we too as Lutherans, we have a tendency uh, to kind of look at you know, stay focused on sin and, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a sinner and, you know, and, you know, we need to do that. But we also have to look at the holiness and we have to look at the good side of God's creation and how the Lord is at work in every piece and how he loves us and how he loves his creation. And so in these verses, when he says that all things stand together through Christ. This is such an encouragement. And then it moves on to his love for the church. So on the one hand, he's talking about creation in the broad spectrum. But then he looks in verse 18 and he talks about how Jesus is the head of the body of the church. And how he is the firstborn firstborn from the dead, everything might be first. And then in verse 19, and there's incarnational language, which goes against the Gnostics. In him is pleased to dwell all the fullness. And see how it reads in English. Um, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and the, so the word to dwell, again, so prefixes are important in Greek. So uh, it's the word uh, for house, oikos. 
But then the prefix means it comes down. So he comes to dwell in the house, but it's a downward movement. So it's a heavenly movement to earth. And then pleroma is fullness, which was a term that the Gnostics loved to use for the, you know, the, the fullness of the divine. And he's saying that the fullness of God comes down and takes a, makes a home right in our midst. It's incarnational. So that verse 19 is heavily incarnational in Greek. And then he gets into uh, Christology in verses 21 to 23 uh, as he defines Christ and connects it, Christ to the ministry of reconciliation. So he moves to the church's life. So it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Hear that incarnational language again? Something the Gnostics would not like. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So see, this is Garden of Eden language. So incarnational language again in terms of the Christian life. Because remember the Gnostics, they said everything spiritual is holy, everything material is evil. So they would say godly, holy things can't dwell with material things. And so that's why they denied sacraments. That's why the, they denied the incarnation and so Paul is emphasizing this protology sort of theme that when we are reconciled, we are like Adam and Eve again. We are holy. We are God's creation. And I think that is very important to think about in terms of eschatology, right? You can't have eschatology without protology. Protology helps keep things, keep us in focus. And then he goes through and he talks, and we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about the sufferings of Paul, but let's take a look at this a little bit more because uh, I want to get through this before we break today. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 
There is so much here. And, you know, you have, so, okay, so you look at this language and you have here in verse 23, um, this foundation and and being made firm uh, because of the hope of the gospel which you heard. And he says it in English as... um, Let's see how they translate it. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And it is this, it is of which this, Paul becomes a a deacon. Diaconus is what it is in Greek. But then he gets to verse 25. And he talks about his, his ministry, his apostleship. And it's according to, how do they read this in English? Stewardship. But in Greek, it's oikonomia. So we get the word economy or economics from this word, oikonomia. But it's a householder. And the idea is that he takes a place, right? Like a house. You come down and then you manage. You manage the house, and he's talking about how his apostleship is the managing of the gospel and the gifts of God, which is, it's been given to him and fulfilled the word of God. It's a mystery which has been hidden and is now made known. And in verse 27, God desired to make known the riches of his glory of this mystery to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. He uses again the word divine knowledge in terms of mystery and Christ dwelling within the Christians. And I'd like to talk a little bit about this. So he ends the chapter. If you look at verses 28 and 29, He uses some language here against the Gnostics. So he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Now what's interesting about this is it says mature here in the English. I like complete or finished. Um, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says it is finished, tetelestai, it's the same word for mature, finished, complete. We don't lack in Christ. And so this gets to how much Christ loves you. That when he forgives you, And when he loves you, and when he promises to stay with you, it's not just a little at a time, but he gives you all of himself. Now, knowledge and wisdom comes with growth, but his presence is always with you. And so when you look at the world, or when you look at the struggles of life, it is important to know that 
Jesus takes a seat with you. He, ta- he makes a home with you. He comes to dwell. Um, the householding of St. Paul's ministry of the word of God, the gospel, and the absolution is Christ making a home with you. So you look at the world and you say, the world is going crazy, but then you go to divine service. You enter the liturgy and then you hear the words of Christ, you hear the scriptures, and this is the economy, the oikonomia of the apostles making a home with you. And this gets to Paul's suffering then. So Paul wraps his suffering into his office, the church. He connects it to the word of God. And so then we get to this practical aspect because Paul suffered greatly, didn't he? I mean, you know, 2 Corinthians is sort of his litany of all the things that he suffered. And he just rattles them off, right? Shipwreck, you know, thorn in the flesh. I mean, imagine, right? <clears throat> the thorn in the flesh that buffets me. And, you know, the word in Greek for buffet is like a boxer doing this. So, you know, the thorn in the flesh is just going like this to Paul. And so then you get to the very practical question of, okay, pastor, you're telling us that all things subsist together in Christ and everything comes together and his fashion just right and he loves me and he's present with me and he's putting things in order, but I suffer, I struggle, uh, I, have, I have my struggle <clears throat> with sin or faith or I struggle with the dynamics in my life, um, my agony, um, right? And you could just like rattle these things off and go, but I still have these things. And what is Paul leading us to? But he's leading us to learn that, remember I was talking at the beginning about wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, and that understanding, synesis, is something that the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Teaching us in the midst of our sufferings. And when God's word is put to our sufferings, we learn something different than people who suffer apart from the word of God and the Eucharist. I would include the Eucharist with the word of God. And so how does one use her own pain and suffering to help others? And so hospitality would be an answer. The ability to pay attention to others, to the guest. So in our suffering, our suffering grows deeper and more painful when, and the tendency is in our pain, to only look at our pain. And then as we look at our pain, we get this myopia, where it's the only thing we can see. And then we start to lose grip, because all we see is the pain. And we want to alleviate it. We can't alleviate it. And so everything else starts to unravel. And so to counteract our myopia, our myopic focus on our pain, 
is hospitality, to look out and to look around. And you still feel the pain, but as you look around, you start to see the pain of others. And the Holy Spirit is teaching us through our pain. So how do we do hospitality in the midst of our own suffering? Because this is what Paul's talking about in chapter one in a roundabout way. One is concentration. How do we concentrate? What do we concentrate on? So concentration leads to meditation and contemplation. It observes what is happening around us in the lives of others. It helps our souls to stop being restless. In suffering and worry, we seek self-preservation. And so we cannot create the space needed to allow others into our lives. When we are restless, people become intruders. But, you know, it's the nature of God's design with hospitality and humanity is if I'm only focusing on my own pain, I become isolated. And that's hell. Hell is isolation, solitude. So through concentration, prayer and meditation, listening to the scriptures, we look out. Then we see our neighbor, we see others. And then there's space for us to reach out. But then it also creates the dynamic where others then, there's space for others to help us in our suffering. And so it becomes, you know, there's language in the Old Testament about coming in and going out from this time forth and forevermore. You know, there's this holy movement in space. And so there's this uh, James Hillman, director of the studies at the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich, wrote this about counseling. For the other person to open and talk requires a withdrawal of the counselor. I must withdraw to make room for the other. This withdrawal, rather than going out to meet the other, is an intense act of concentration a model for which can be found in the Jewish mystical doctrine of Simsum. God is omnipresent and omnipotent was everywhere. He filled the universe with his being. How then could the creation come about? God had to create withdrawal. He created the not him, the other, by self-concentration. On the human level, withdrawal of myself aids the other to come into being. We have to be content with where the Lord has placed us in life. We must come to see pain, suffering, and struggle as some of the ways we learn as we concentrate on God's word. And we, try to, we, we seek the Lord through prayer to find a little bit of rest in the midst of our suffering, and then he goes to work. And then Hebrews 6 19 and 20 is beautiful in this regard. And it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love that anchor of the soul. And then the other thing uh, with hospitality is community. 
When we have come to terms with our own situations in life, then we are at home and can provide hospitality to others. It provides opportunity for people to come and go in our lives, have space to be close or distant, to talk or be silent. Our hospitality and community allows people to have the space where guests can find their own souls and listen. What we experience provides an avenue to know how to help. We know what it is to need space and quiet in the midst of our own losses. This is valuable insight that allows others the space to learn. And this is true of the church, right? Like, as Christians, people of God's word, we, we like to talk. As I'll speak as a pastor. Pastors love to talk, right? In case you didn't know that or notice that yet. Um, and it's really hard for pastors. I'll speak for myself. It's really hard not to talk. It's, but to create space and a time of quiet and let people feel their way and find find the truth and sometimes there's time for talking sometimes there's just time for existing and so community is to be present incarnate to be in the body and that's important to remember i think sometimes we don't have words for people's suffering so if you if someone's talking to you and you hear them talk about their suffering and you want to provide an answer but you just don't know the answer just sometimes to be to exist to speak a word of benediction to speak a word of love to speak a word of hope to pray to listen to share to share the time it's very important with people that are suffering and the Lord w- works through all of these things. And there's more on the back. You can take a look at what's left. It's more of the same. But it, uh, these verses do talk about uh, the Christian suffering and growth. The thing that I would like to leave with you in all of this, especially with the word synesis, with divine understanding, is it existed of its essence in Jesus. It exists in its essence in Jesus. In us, we learn it. And so in our prayers, we pray to the Lord. We ask him to guide us, direct us, and make us wise and holy and understanding. Uh, And so the Lord is at work in your lives through the word. And then as you experience things in this life, God's word and the Eucharist are put with these things and he is changing you and shaping you and he is making you holy and wise and he loves you. So let us pray. O Lord, as we have known the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, by the message of the angel to the Virgin Mary, so by the message of his cross and passion, bring us to the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.